2 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Well, when I was growing up, um, my parents had a number of animals, uh, goats, chickens, ducks, rabbits, all different kind of farm animals that were our pets. And uh, we would keep them in the back corner of our yard, and there was this kind of fenced-in area in the back corner of our yard, and it was my responsibility to take care of them. So I would have to go and feed them every day and water them and um, occasionally take straw or hay out there for them. And uh, there was one particular day, I'll never forget it. Uh, I think at that time, I know we at least had some had goats and we had rabbits. I don't know what else we had. But I go out there to feed the animals and I walk into the goat pen and this rabbit comes up and just lunges at me and attacks me, kind of like Monty Python style. Now, I wasn't provoking this rabbit. I wasn't trying to pick it up. I just walked in the gate, and it came over, like jumped onto my leg and wouldn't let go. So I go like this, and I get it off of me, and then I go into the house. I was like, Mom, the rabbit attacked me. She's like, right, right, the rabbit attacked you. I'm like, no, it really attacked me. Look at my boot, and there's a hole in my boot because it attacked me so viciously. She's like, well, you must have been doing something to it. We're like, were you poking it? Were you trying to pick it up? Like, what were you doing to the rabbit that it would attack you? Rabbits don't just attack people like that. I'm like, no, I just walked in the gate, and it attacked me. So she goes out to the goat pen, and sure enough, it attacked her the same way. And she didn't believe me at first, and I don't really blame her for not believing me because rabbits don't usually lunge and attack people like that. It's not something you would expect. It sounds like something that would be made up, like a fairy tale or fable. In 2 Peter, it's kind of, 2 Peter is kind of an interesting book because we don't know with certainty who exactly Peter is writing to. We don't know exactly the false teachers that he was combating. But we know that there were false teachers. And in chapter 2, verse 1, it says that these false teachers will go as far as even denying the master who bought them. Peter also tells in us in chapter 3 that scoffers will come and who will declare that Jesus really isn't going to come back. Arguing that from the creation of the world, everything has stayed the same. And so they would just say, well, things keep continuing. Jesus came, you know, years ago. He hasn't come back, and things are just as they have been. So they're just going to continue. Jesus is not going to come back. And many people during that time frame, traditionally the false teachers and those who would listen to them, might be tempted to think that Jesus' story was a myth. Not that he came to the earth, but that he was God. 
that he was going to come back. And the truth is, there are aspects of Christianity that are hard to believe. Like the idea that someone would rise from the dead. Someone who is born blind would be able to see again. These things are hard for us to believe as human beings. And so many who don't believe suggest that these things are just fables, myths, made-up type things. The English word for myth doesn't necessarily indicate something isn't true, but the word for myth that Peter uses in this passage is a word that, according to the exegetical dictionary of the New Testament, occurs five times in the New Testament. It says it's consistently in a negative and pejorative sense for contrived tales, void of truth or speculations, derived from false teachings. The ESV Study Bible puts it more succinctly this way. A myth is a story without basis in fact, a legend. And so people, false teachers in that day, tended to believe that these tales about Jesus were myths, or that he was coming back was a myth. And if that's the case during Peter's day, it's even more so true in our day. Listen to what famous atheist Richard Dawkins says about the Christian faith and about the Bible. He said, the Bible should be taught, but emphatically not as reality. It is fiction, myth, poetry, anything but reality. As such, it needs to be taught because it underlies so much of our literature and our culture. Then look at what Albert Einstein said to uh, a man named Eric Gutkind. He said, the word of God is for me nothing more than, than the expression and product of human weaknesses. The Bible, a collection of honorable but still primitive legends, which are nevertheless pretty childless, childless, childish. No interpretation, no matter how subtle, can for me change this. These subtleized interpretations are highly manifold according to their nature and have almost nothing to do with the original text. For me, the Jewish religion, like all other religions, is an incarnation of the most childish superstitions. So the world tends to see the Bible and the story of Christ, the gospel, as myths, fables, legends. Things that are devoid of truth, not based upon facts. Last week we talked about how we could have assurance in our lives. How we could have assurance that we're on the right path, that we're going to live fruitful lives. And also how we can have assurance that we'll go to heaven. But this week we're going to talk about how we can have confidence in the truth of the gospel. How we can know that the gospel and the scriptures are true. And in this passage, we see that Peter gives us three reasons for confidence in the gospel. And the first reason is that God confirmed him, that is Christ. God confirmed the gospel. I find it interesting in in this passage that Peter brings up the transfiguration and talks about his experience there. Because if if it were I, I would talk about the resurrection. I would say, in case you didn't know, Jesus was dead, he was in the tomb, and he rose up again, and I saw him, and a whole bunch of other people saw him. He's risen from the dead. I mean, that's the evidence that I would use. But I think there's a reason that Peter doesn't use that as evidence. Because the devil's advocate might say, okay, I agree he rose from the dead, but so did Lazarus. Just because he rose from the dead doesn't mean he's coming back again. Just because he rose from the dead doesn't mean that he's God. I mean, he's not here. He hasn't come back yet. If he was going to come back, wouldn't he come back already? 
And so Peter brings up the transfiguration, and the thing that's interesting about the transfiguration is first it's included in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, basically the same set of circumstances comes right before the transfiguration. Here's what I mean. In Mark chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Matthew 16, 28 says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Luke 9, 27, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So Jesus tells his disciples, some of you are going to see the kingdom of God. And then right after that, he takes Peter, James, and John up onto the Mount of Transfiguration. And on that mountain, Jesus' face is altered. His clothing becomes radiant white. Elijah and Moses are there. Moses representing the law in the Old Testament. Elijah representing the prophets. And the fact that they're there indicates first that the dead are raised, that people who were dead are now alive with him. And on that mountain, the, the disciples get a glimpse of Jesus' glory. They get confirmation that Jesus was God's son, that he is the one who's going to bring in the kingdom, that he's not just some rabbi or teacher, that he is the promised one, the Messiah. And so they get that confirmation about the life of Jesus. And so in that event, God puts his stamp of approval on Jesus where he says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Some accounts say, listen to him. And so God confirms Jesus as the son of God. And Peter is an eyewitness to that fact. And that leads us to the second reason for confidence in the gospel. And that is that men witnessed Peter says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. Peter says, it's not like I heard a story and then that came from this person and from this person. I was there. I saw what happened. I saw Jesus' clothing change. I saw his face altered. I saw Elijah and Moses who had been dead for hundreds of years prior. I saw them with my own eyes. I heard the voice from heaven that shook that said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I've seen this event. I've seen the fact that Jesus came in his kingdom and that God put his stamp of approval on him. And because of that, I have confidence he's going to come again. So he gives that confidence based on his eyewitness testimony. But apart from his testimony, we also have a number of other reasons to believe in the gospel, and specifically the resurrection. Bart Ehrman gives some evidence for, the, for uh, the existence of Christ. Bart Ehrman is not even, uh, to my knowledge, a Christian. He's actually kind of de, um, attacked the Christian faith in the Bible uh, in some settings. But he says Jesus existed, and those vocal persons who would deny it do so not because they have considered the evidence with the dispassionate eye of the historian, but because they have some other agenda that this denial serves. I mean, if, if it wasn't for the fact that the Bible was spiritual and supernatural, everyone would believe in it. Everyone would. I mean, if it wasn't for the fact that the New Testament tells us that a man rose up from the dead, everyone would believe it. We have a number of pieces of evidence to suggest that. 
We have the writers of the New Testament who confirm it again and again. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes about the gospel and he says, Then he appeared, speaking of Jesus, to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Now this is one of the strongest proofs of the gospel and of the resurrection for me because if Paul is writing this and he says, he appeared to 500 people and some of them are still alive, many of them are still alive, you can go and corroborate that story with them. Do you think that he would say that if it was just something that was made up? If they hadn't really seen him? Emile Lecamus writes this, If Jesus, who had been laid in the tomb on Friday, was not there on Sunday, either he was removed or he came forth by his own power. There's no alternative. Was he removed? By whom? By friends or by enemies? The latter had set a squad of soldiers to guard him. Therefore, they had no intention of causing him to disappear. Moreover, their prudence could not counsel this. They would have made the way too easy for stories of the resurrection, which the disciples might invent. The wisest course was for them to guard him as proof. Thus they could reply to every pretension that might arise, Here is the corpse, he's not risen. As for his friends, they had neither the intention nor the power to remove him. So we have the eyewitnesses to the transfiguration. Peter is an eyewitness to that. We have eyewitnesses to the resurrection, that Jesus was dead, that he rose again. There's no other... Uh, feasible, logical explanation for that. But we also have the eyewitness testimony of changed lives. We see in the scripture a number of people who were changed. We see Paul, who was a persecutor of the church, who becomes a devout follower, who gives his life, we believe, for the church, for Christ. We have Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector, who was dishonest, who became a moral follower of God. We have Peter, who went from being fearful and cowardly to being bold and courageous. But not only that, we have eyewitness testimonies right here in this room. Stories of people who were changed, who once walked in darkness and now walk in light. And those eyewitness testimonies proclaim to the world again and again the truth of the gospel. That Jesus is alive. That he does change lives. And because of that, we can have confidence. Confidence in the eyewitnesses in the past and also the fact that he still changes lives today. So the reasons for confidence in the gospel. First, God confirmed him or Jesus. Second, men witnessed him. And finally, the third, the scriptures point to him. Peter says this, and we have something more sure of the prophetic word. Now, while this phrase has been debated, what Peter may be saying here is the prophetic prophetic word, that is the word of God proclaimed in the Old Testament, but it would also apply to the New Testament, is a more sure testimony than even Peter's eyewitness testimony. That if we look at the Old Testament, we see that all these prophecies are fulfilled in Christ. Peter says in verse 20, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. It's not that the scriptures were a bunch of combined wisdom. It's not like they just, scripture writers got together, let's share our thoughts on life. This was an inspired book. Verse 21, Peter says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
The Bible is a very unique book in that it's both a human book and a divine book. It's a human book in the sense that men write, men wrote it. They wrote it down, and in the Bible you can see their own distinct personalities, and you, they're written in a particular uh, cultural context. But it's also a divine book in that God was writing through them. And there's things that are in Scripture that the writers of Scripture, there's no way that they could have known it themselves. You know, some liberal scholars will look at some books specifically in the Old Testament and they'll say, well, there's no way they could have known that, so it, we'll have to date that much later than we think because they must have been writing history. They must have been writing what happened rather than foretelling the future. And in the scriptures, we see a number of ways that this, the Old Testament specifically points to Christ. I mean, we see that even back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the, what's called the Proto-Evangelion, the promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the snake. Now, I don't think Moses knew that Jesus was going to come and die on a cross and rise again from the grave. But God knew that, and he was writing his story even in the earliest parts of Scripture. And God is weaving his story together, and we can see that. And when you look at the New Testament, the New Testament is in many ways a commentary on the Old Testament. And you see some details in the New Testament, and you think to yourself, well, that's a strange thing for the author to include. But then you look, it's that Jesus was fulfilling a prophecy, and that's why they included that. Josh McDowell, in his book, The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict, says the Old Testament written over a 1,000-year period, contains nearly 300 references to the coming Messiah. He says all of these were fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and they establish a solid confirmation of his credentials as the Messiah. According to mathematician and scientist Peter Stoner, the probability that just eight of these prophecies would be randomly fulfilled would be 1 in 10 to the 17th power that eight of them would be fulfilled. That's one in, ten, uh, one, in one to the, with 17 zeros after that. The probability that someone would fulfill just 48 of these prophecies would be one in 10 to the 187th power. And yet we see in the scriptures and again and again how Jesus fulfills each and every one of these Old Testament prophecies. Peter says that the scripture is like a lamp shining in a dark place. Similar to what the psalmist says in Psalm 119, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. We see that the scriptures in many ways were ahead of their time. And like I said, you know, that's why liberal scholars sometimes look at it and say it must have been written later because it's so ahead of their time. And we see this, uh, first of all, in the fact that it proclaims that there's one God. Uh, most uh, writings, ancient Near Eastern writings, are very bizarre, and they talk about this God fighting with this God, and this God using this to make this, and you know, having all these multitudes of gods. And then we have in the, New, in the Old Testament, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. End of story. One God created the heavens and the earth. We also have an increased morality in the Old Testament, a morality that was much ahead of its time. For example, one difference between an ancient law code and the Old Testament uh, is described in Ur-Namu, which is an ancient Sumeranian document. 
And in that document, it says that if a man proceeded by force and raped a woman, a female slave of another man, that man must pay five shekels of silver. Deuteronomy 22, 28-29 says, If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed, and seizes her and lies with her, and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman fifty shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. And so in the Old Testament, it's a strange thing to us, but if someone... Uh, violated a a woman, they would have to pay a a price, and they would also have to marry that woman. And the reason for that was because in that day and age, women didn't have any uh, rights or way to support themselves, so he would have to support the woman for the rest of his life. That demonstrates an increased morality, an increased concern for women that wasn't there in the ancient world. You know, in in some other texts, I remember there's one particular text where if, uh, if women, men and women were caught in a certain act in adultery, the woman might be put to death, but not the man. In Old Testament, this prescription is both of them shall be judged. And so we see this increased morality. We see also a keen understanding of human nature. There's a lot of cultural issues that we need to work through when we look at the Old Testament or the New Testament. But when we get down to the principles, it really proclaims a a very insightful look at human psychology. Uh, I was reading a book a couple of years ago about cognitive behavioral therapy. And the writer of the book was not a believer, but his whole argument was that your thoughts influence your emotions, which also influences your behavior, So if you're going to change, you need to change your thinking, and you need to replace faulty thinking patterns with correct patterns. And and they had all these kind of cognitive distortions, ways that you kind of, you know, think of things in the wrong way. And that's really a biblical idea. I mean, look at 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 to 6. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of of God. And take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. And so we have a scripture like that and other places in scripture that kind of confirm this kind of new, kind of modern, psychological therapy. And that was 2,000 years before. And then some sometime later, you know, I don't know the exact date, someone came along and said, hey, let's start this thing called cognitive behavioral therapy. But it's back there in the Scriptures. Script, the Scriptures are a light that reveals the truth of Christ. There's a profound insight into human psychology in the Scriptures. And in many ways, it was before its time. So reasons for the confidence for confidence in the gospel. God confirmed him, Jesus. Men witnessed him, and the scriptures predicted or point to him. And some of us are here today, maybe we're not believers, and we need to start that journey of investigating the claims of Christ. Others of us are here, and maybe we're believers, but maybe we need to be able to defend our faith. First Peter 3.15 says that we need to make a defense for anyone who asks you the hope that you have inside of you. So maybe some of us need to study, 
examine the evidence for the resurrection, examine the evidence for the truth of God's word, so that when someone asks us, we'll be able to share the truth with them rather than just not knowing. But there's more that must happen if someone is going to come to know Christ. If we're going to believe the claims of Christ, we need to surrender to him. And in some ways, evidence will never be enough. Uh, in 1975, researchers at Stanford University did a, uh, recruited some undergraduate students. And uh, they gave them 25 different sets of suicide notes. And of these 25 sets, in each one there was two, and one of the, one of the uh, two was a real suicide note that they'd gotten from the coroner's office, and one was just a made-up one that you know, someone just wrote. And so they asked the undergraduate students to come through, to go through them and pick out which one was real, which one was fake. And so they did that. And then randomly they told one group of students, hey, you are really good at this. You are kind of genius status. You've gotten 24 out of 25 right on this test. They told other students randomly, regardless of how they had really done, you've done really bad on this test. You've only gotten 10 out of 25. Then sometime after that, they told the students, well, we were lying to you. We don't know what you got, or we're not telling you what you actually got. We just, we just made this up, and the real test is we wanted to see how you respond to you know, the fact that if you think that you're really good or really bad at this. Then they asked the students, so how many do you think that you got right? And how many do you think that the average person got right? And what they found was, even though they didn't have any evidence one way or the other, what they found was the people who had been previously told that they were geniuses, they reported that they would do much, much higher than the average person. The people who were told that they had done poorly, even without any evidence, they said, that they would probably do much worse than the average person. See, they had been told something and they had bought into it. They had bought into the idea that they were particularly good or particularly bad. And then even after there was no evidence there, they held on to that. Same thing is true in regard to the evidence for Christ. If you come to the table thinking the Bible is a scam, there's no God, Christians are fake, then you'll probably find evidence to support that. I mean, if you come with that notion, even if uh, there's evidence that opposes that, you'll probably still find evidence to support your viewpoint. But if you really want to search and know the truth, I consider, I'd ask you to, to consider the claims of Christ with an open mind. Perhaps even inviting God into that journey, saying, God, if, if you're real... Please show me that. Not coming with preconceived notions that it's all false, it's all fake. By the way, some people have done that and found that as they were trying to disprove Christ, they found evidence that Christ did really exist and rise from the dead. For those of us who are believers, this is also an encouragement to pray for those who don't know the Lord. Paul says that the God of this age has blinded those who don't know the Lord. The evidence can be right before them, but they can't see it. They can't make sense of that. So we need to pray that God would open their eyes so they would see the truth of the gospel.
reasons for confidence in the gospel. God confirmed him. Men witnessed him. The scriptures point to him or predicted him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the confidence that we can have in the cross and in the resurrection. We thank you that you've provided so much evidence for us in the scriptures to demonstrate the fact that you did really come to the earth. You did die on the cross and you did rise again. Lord, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you, who is maybe unsure of where they stand in relationship to Christ. Lord, I pray that they would invite you into a journey of exploration, of study. That they would come with an open mind to really determine the truth, to know if you are real, to know if you do love them, that you did, if you do, did rise from the dead. Lord, we pray for those who don't know you, our friends, loved ones who don't know you. God, we know you provided ample evidence. We know that you've demonstrated yourself and proved yourself, but they can't see it. Their eyes are blinded. Lord, I pray that through your Holy Spirit, you'd take away their heart of stone, that you'd open their eyes so they would see the beauty of who you are. Lord, I pray for those who are coming here this very week for breakfast with Santa. But we know that many of them don't know you. Lord, I pray that they would see you. That they would see your love. They would see your grace. And that they would surrender to you. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all that you are. Thank you for all that you do. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.